I'll go ahead and start us off with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful to be here together um, in this place, Lord, to uh, gather and worship you, Lord, and to study your word together. Uh, Lord, we pray that this time together would be fruitful and it would be edifying. And uh, Lord, just that we would come away with a greater appreciation uh, for what you have done through the course of human history, God, and how you have, um, Lord, made yourself known to us in so many ways, God, uh, but especially through your son, Jesus. And God, we just pray that, um, again, we would just be in awe of who you are, Lord, as a result of uh, this study today, Lord. I pray that you help us all to, um, Lord, recall what we need to say today, and again, that it would be edifying and that it would be truth. And, uh, Lord, that it be to your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So I uh, drew the lucky straw of going first today. Actually, I volunteered for this position. I, I, the youth and I, we just started into a systematic theology study. And we've actually been studying scripture. And, uh, and so I volunteered for sola scriptura. So, uh, but I did want to kind of give a, just a brief overview of the solas. It is the fuzzy button, right? I have hit it twice now. It is on. Hey, there we go. Thank you, Dennis. All right, so we had the five solas here. Uh, I'm not even going to bother reading the, the Latin part. I'm just going to go with Scripture alone. We have grace alone, faith alone, and through Christ alone, and glory to God alone. Um, yeah. A little over 500 years ago, in the year 1517, it wasn't, thank you, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and that ignited the Protestant Reformation. Granted, there was a lot of groundwork that was laid ahead of time and there were by many theologians and precursory reformers, but this event is often used to mark the beginning of the Reformation, which was largely a reformation of the church, its practices, but ultimately it's a recovery of the gospel, the true gospel. And so modern theologians have sort of developed these five solas, uh, which they feel sort of sums up the foundational truths, the theological principles of the Reformation. And so sola means alone, and alone means to separate or to isolate or to have nothing else present. Perhaps a better definition in this term or in this context here would be the exclusion of all else. And when you consider the opposite of alone, being together or accompanied by, and then consider placing the antonym of alone next to these, you would sort of see some of the major problems that we might encounter when you think of by scripture and X, or by faith plus Y, or by through Christ and Z. Um, so that kind of helps you to see that the importance, the importance of the word alone, the sola. So while the reformers did not formulate this list, there were certain theological principles that they were willing to die for, and many of them did in doing so. So sola scriptura. That is really small. Anyway. I do have a few verses uh, that I was going to show y'all, um, but I'm already skipping ahead here. So sola scriptura is said to be the formal principle of the Reformation. And by formal principle, that means that it's kind of the authoritative source of the theology. And it, it's kind of, it segments it out from what uh, the theology is itself. So you, you might think of sort of the formal principle of other religions maybe being key figures, leaders, teachers. Uh, but in the case of Christianity, it is scripture. Um, so when we say sola scriptura or scripture alone, we are saying that only scripture is the inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of God. It is the final authority for the church and the Christian. Why was this such a big deal during the Reformation? Well, the church had become corrupt 
It had moved away from Scripture being its sole authority. They had elevated other things such as tradition. They had elevated the words of the Pope as having equal authority to Scripture rather than being subject, subject to it. All things should be filtered and judged through Scripture. And why do we say this? Why is it the sole authority? It's because God is its divine author. And so that's where I have this scripture here that I wanted to show. Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And that kind of leads us into the next verse I wanted to show. And I actually, I intended to combine these uh, slides together, but I wasn't. I did not get around to doing that. So 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Here we see that this same God who created all things by speaking now condescends to us as human beings and speaks in our language. And He has spoken all of Scripture and it is rightly ascribed to be its author. Creation and scripture are products of God speaking. And because God is its author, we can say that it is true and without error as these things are reflective of his character. We say it is true because God does not lie. As we can see here in Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. We also see it in Hebrews 6.18 where it says that it is impossible for God to lie. And so for these reasons, these verses, because God is true, we can say that the Bible is true. Uh, we can say that it is without error because God is perfect. We can see this in Deuteronomy 32.4 where it says that his work is perfect. And we also see it in Psalm 18.30 where it says that his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. God is perfect and true, and as the Bible's author, it too reflects these attributes of God. If we go back to 2 Timothy 3, I've included the, the next verse here. Uh, but here we can see the sufficiency of Scripture. And note how Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in, righteous, in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. There is no source necessary for us to build our doctrines but Scripture. It contains everything we need for the Christian life. If we had nothing else in our lives but the Scriptures, we would still have everything we need from God concerning salvation and for trusting and obeying Him. You know, all parents are maybe familiar with uh, giving their children commands uh, maybe things for them to obey. And, uh, you know, John and I, we've often told our kids about how they need to obey mom and dad. Uh, we often ground that request on the basis of love. Like, we, we love you so much, so please obey. Um, but you can think of, like, who else would you rather receive counsel from than the people who love you the most in this world? Um, and of course that would go at any age, whether you have a five-year-old or a 17-year-old, or I'm, I'm sure if you had a 50-year-old child that you would still desire what is best for them and hope that your children might listen to your counsel. Um, you know, so, so youth here, children that are in here and listening, you know, think of how maybe like you may be considering an expensive purchase or something like that. Your parents have good wisdom on how to spend money. Or if you think about maybe like you're considering marriage, or you're considering a, a potential spouse, your parents would have good wisdom to give you concerning that. Or maybe you got a bunch of Halloween candy and you desire to eat the whole bucket of candy, your parents would have good wisdom concerning that. But let's consider how much more the Lord loves his elect, much more than any parent could love their child. And just like we would direct our children to consider the words of their parents that love them, we should direct ourselves and others to what God has to say. Why wouldn't you want to hear what our Creator has to say on how to live? He certainly has the authority to do so. So young men, when you are considering maybe making a proposal to someone, and you say, God, I really love this girl, but she isn't a believer. 
God has spoken on a matter such as that. God has given us wisdom for how to live and make decisions concerning that. He has commanded, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Or again, with eating that bowl of candy. (laughs) God says, be not among the drunkards or among gluttonous eaters. So God has spoken and we need to obey his command. Scripture is where we must turn to for how we are to live. Our culture is trying to get us to look every, to everywhere else but to Scripture. It suggests that we look to science, the experts, the consensus, or even our own hearts. But consider the Sadducees whenever they asked Jesus about the resurrection. Did Jesus say, what does the science say on the matter? Or when you think of the Pharisees and when they asked questions about divorce, did Jesus say, well, what does your heart tell you? No, Jesus says, have you not read? He directs us to the scriptures. He directed them to the scriptures. It is the scriptures that direct us how to live. Because of the necessity and the importance of scripture, it is vital that we share it with others. One of the things I've loved uh, hearing about and learning as a young boy are some of the stories of of missionaries going and, and taking scripture Uh, to other nations, and maybe delivering a Bible in their native tongue. Um, I can recall seeing videos of villagers who were weeping to have a Bible in their own language. And I think of what a gift that is. And I find it funny to think of how, like, I have failed to recognize that, you know what, I've received that gift of Scripture being presented in my own tongue. And about 500 years ago, in the wake of the Reformation, the Bible was given to us in our native tongue, where William Tyndall risked his life to produce an English translation of the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew text. He set out on this task, and when he set out on this task, it was illegal for anybody to even read the Bible in their own language. So you can imagine the legality of trying to translate it and then print it in one's own language. So Tyndall was a wanted man for this endeavor, and the Roman Catholic Church hunted him down. He was eventually betrayed by a friend and imprisoned for 18 months. His captors had tied him to the stake and strangled him to death and then burned his body. What a cost, and yet what a blessing it is for us and the church for these past 500 years. It is a blessing for you, to you, and to me. And this was no doubt a work of God. And as I close and and wrap up, I, I did want to bring up Romans 10, 14 through 17. And it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without, I'm sorry, without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Here we see how the unregenerate come to faith. They can only do so by hearing, but hearing what? It is the word of Christ, which is the gospel. And it is by hearing the word of God alone that saves us. David. Well, praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Aaron. What a blessing. The reformers did not agree on everything, but they did agree on these five points of doctrine, these essential points, uh, beginning with, as Eric so well taught, concerning Scripture as our sole ultimate authority as believers. What I want to cover right now is grace alone and what that means to us. A simple definition of grace is free unmerited favor. And I want to narrow this down because of the time constraints to consider saving grace. That's really what we're looking at here today. But that free, 
unmerited, which means undeserved or unearned favor of God toward people for salvation. It's important that we recognize and understand the essential nature of grace toward us as people. You know, when we look at these solas, we want to keep in mind that it is not the scripture that is so offensive, even though it is to the world and to many in the church. It's not the word grace. It's not the word faith. It's not even Christ or glory to God. It's the word alone that causes offense. Many will say, I am justified or saved by grace plus. Just like Eric mentioned, I mean, Aaron mentioned earlier the idea of, of something plus rather than alone. So when we think of grace alone, this is a doctrine that offends our pride, and yet this is what Scripture teaches us, and we want to hold to because it is what the Word of God teaches us concerning our fallen natures. Not only are we sinners, we are ungodly. That means there's nothing in us like God apart from faith in Christ. We're enemies of God. So as people that do not know Christ are not seeking God, we, they are running from God, fleeing from Him, and it's only through God's grace toward people that anyone is ever saved because none of us seeks God in our own flesh. It is God who is the initiator of grace toward us, toward people for salvation. If God had not worked, no one would be saved. We want to make sure we understand that. Grace is not fair. Grace is much better than fairness. If God were fair, no one would ever be saved. We are all sinners. We all need salvation. And yet none of us even seek it in our own flesh. I have two points very quickly. The first point is God is free in dispensing His grace toward people. If you would, I want to look at Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. If someone would uh, read those two verses for us, please, I'd uh, be very thankful. Romans chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. Thank you, brother. You know, for so many years, I read those verses and said, man, God is up there. He's a tyrant. He can't wait to, to withhold things from people. But I tell you, as a Christian, when you read those verses, that is some of the very best news we can read. To know that the one perfect being in the universe, perfect in all his attributes, loving, gracious, merciful, kind, forgiving, generous. When he says these things, we know that this is the very best good news we could receive, that God is gracious toward his creatures, that he is merciful and kind. I wish we had time to look through all of Ephesians chapter 2, but we don't. But I do want to, if you would, quickly turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and, and look at verse 4. When we see what he just said concerning uh, his mercy and his compassion in Romans, uh, notice what Romans, cha I mean, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says. If someone would read that, please. Amen. Isn't he? He is rich in mercy, not. Not withholding, he is rich in mercy. And notice verse 7. Someone read verse 7 for us there in Ephesians chapter 2, please. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you so much. The exceeding riches of his grace. What a blessing to read and understand. But 
What we want to look at and focus on now is, of course, verses 8, 9, and 10 here in Ephesians chapter 2. This is a, a clear statement concerning the grace of God toward us as Christians today. Someone read those three verses, please. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of words, lest any one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Thank you so much. So when we look at these verses, there's so much here, but we want to think of really uh, when you were a small child, you may have drunk, uh, been in the backyard playing and gotten thirsty and wanted to drink out of the garden hose. You pick up that garden hose, but it doesn't give you any satisfaction. You're still thirsty holding that hose. It's when you turn on the faucet and the water flows through that hose in which you receive refreshment. And that's really what we're reading here in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are saved by grace through faith. That, that is so important for us to understand and consider that it is God's work in us, not our work in ourselves. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God not of works, as we heard earlier. There's no works that we can do to earn salvation. And that's really the second point I have, which uh, not only is God free in dispensing grace, which is marvelous and wonderful, uh, salvation itself is free. And we want to, to rejoice in that. Because when we consider salvation, I want you to understand, salvation is not improvement of your flesh. Salvation is you becoming a new creation in Christ. You are made a new creature. We read that even there in, in chapter 2 of Ephesians verse 10. Notice what it said. Created. God created. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Not improved. Uh, we are not the latest best version of us. We are a new creature when we come to faith in Christ, He makes us new creatures. We are no longer what we once were. And we praise the Lord for that. So I want us to keep in mind that, that when we see pictures of salvation in the Bible, we see uh, illustrations of, of blind people being made well. We see pictures here of God working in creation. Uh, all of these are examples and illustrations of what happens in salvation look over if you would at john chapter 1 verses 12 and 13 let's read read those two verses please Amen. Thank you. So received, born, you know, all those kind of words are speaking of what happens in us. That, that we are made new creatures through belief and faith in Christ. Uh, what a marvelous, marvelous statement uh, those verses are for us. And then if you would turn to Rome, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 22. One, two more verses I want to look at before we close when we consider um, our desperate condition before we come to faith in Christ. We are no longer, we are not either seeking Him, uh, we don't want anything to do with Him, uh, and yet there's nothing we can do to earn salvation either. There's no work we can do, there's no alms, there's no penance, there, there's nothing we can do in our flesh to be made in right relationship with God except one thing, and that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ for salvation. Read verse 17 of chapter 22 of Revelation. Uh, the beautiful statement here we see concerning the appeal uh, for faith. And the 
sincere and bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Amen, brother. Thank you. So, so when we think of grace alone, it is altogether a work of God when we consider salvation. Yes, we must respond in faith, but that faith itself is a gift. And we understand that if it weren't for the grace of God toward us, none of us would be believers today. Uh, so our salvation is entirely the work of God. And I want you to look at the last verse in the Bible, the very last verse, chapter 22, verse 21. This is perhaps the last words of John the Apostle. How does he end the letter to the book of Revelation? Someone read that for us, please. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. And so be it. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. morning. I'm covering sola fide, that is faith alone. Uh, it's important to note, as mentioned before, that these doctrines that we're going over are not uh, some tradition of men. In fact, they come from a breaking away from, a tradi from traditions of men. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, the reformers saw that these doctrines are clearly taught in Scripture. Uh, so what is meant by sola fide, or faith alone? It, in it, the context of it's referring to our justification. And justification is the change in verdict about us, uh, going from guilty and condemned because of our sin to being not guilty. In Christ's sinless life and his atoning death for the elect satisfied God's justice. Our sin was imputed to Christ. He bore our iniquities. He took a punishment for our sins. And his righteousness was imputed to us when we believed. As I said, Scripture is clear that justification is by faith alone. Luther and the Reformers vehemently rejected a works or merit-based salvation. Uh, such salvation must be rejected because Scripture plainly rejects a works or merit-based justification. During the time of the Protestant Reformation, Rome or the Catholic Church wouldn't deny that people are saved by grace through faith. They wouldn't deny it, but they would say that it's not sufficient alone. Um, doing things such as indulgences, merit, works, uh, in addition to faith was needed for salvation or to be justified. Um, <clears throat> The only true merit that God recognizes in salvation is Christ's. And, and please note, um, I'm going to read some verses here. In a way, I feel like I got the easiest one of these because it, you'll see in these verses that I'm going to read, it is, it's all right there. And I want you to note the association in these verses uh, the word, of the words justified or righteousness uh, along with faith. So, Romans chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, I could read them all, i got a handful here. Romans 3, 21 through 28. But now, from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. For a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Who then, or where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what, of what kind of law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work but believes upon him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. 
Romans 4, 14 through 16. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith has been made empty and the promise has been abolished. For the law brings about wrath. But where there is no law, there is no trespass. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be counted, in order that it may be according to grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all. Romans 5. 1 through 2, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we boast in hope of the glory of God. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. I maybe could read that one verse and just go sit down. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so now those who are of faith, those are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, proclaimed the gospel before him to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. More than that, I count all things to be Lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Very clearly seen in scripture that we are justified by faith and these verses are explicit in that it's not by works of the law or works in general. It is by faith. And just a few quotes here. Uh, The 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter 11 on justification says that faith thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but is accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. And R.C. Sproul said, In our justification, faith is the means by which we are linked to Christ, and receive the benefits of his saving work. By faith we, are, by faith we receive the transport or Imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Faith, true faith, is all that is required to be justified by the righteousness of Christ. Faith trusts in and lays hold of a righteousness that is not around. And it's faith alone in what Christ has done to redeem sinners. It's faith alone that we are made righteous because Christ was righteous and did not sin. So that's that's what I have. Good morning, everybody. Okay. Uh, I have solo Cristo or Solus Christus, depending on where you look. Um, I'm a big fan of context and understanding the context of when something was written and who it was written to in order to help understand what things are supposed to be and how they're supposed to be read and interpreted. So a a bit of history that's already been talked on a few times. 
Um, at the time of the Re- Reformation, the Catholic Church held immense power, the Roman Catholic Church, and they had deviated from Scripture. They had gone to the traditions of man. The power of the papacy was rival to any king on the earth. And they abused that power. It was common that the teachings of the papacy, the clergy, or other church institutions could guarantee salvation through penance, baptism, the Eucharist, that you could pay money for the forgiveness of sins and indulgence, that you could walk around and say, I sinned this way, let me go pay my five dollars to be forgiven. So the idea of Christ alone to us might seem, of course it's Jesus and Jesus alone. But at the time, that was controversial. It took power from the church that they had. It took power from the Pope and put it to really where it had never left. It had never left Jesus's hands, despite what they had ever taught or thought to teach, the power always rested only there. They had teachings of the importance of Mary, the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and the saints who had already passed. They taught that you could pray to the Virgin Mary, you could pray to the saints, and they would intercede for you. And because they were so highly favored from the Lord, that you might get a better response from God, as though praying to the saint could really strong-arm God to get him to do what you want. Lies. Half-truths, twisted scriptures. Solo Christo is the idea of just Jesus. I could stand up here for 15 minutes and just say Jesus that whole time to get it across. I won't do that. Um, We're going to look at a few scriptures um, to highlight who he is and why it's just Jesus. It's just him. Revelation 17.14 says he's the king of kings. Hebrews 4.14-16 through call him the high priest. Galatians 3.13 calls him the redeemer. If we flip to... 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, whom gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. One, just one, not Jesus and the Pope, not Jesus and some past saints, not Jesus and his mother, just Jesus, just him. If we flip to Titus 3, 3 through 7, for we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that by so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. None of that is about us. It is all about him. Again, I could stand here for a few more minutes and just say, Jesus, 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 a whole bunch of times. It is just him. Let's flip to John 14. 1 through 6. Because if you don't believe what Paul wrote, then believe what Jesus said. Do not be troubled, or do not let your heart be troubled. 
believe in God, believe also in me. This is Jesus speaking. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. From his own mouth, it is not, no one comes to the Father through me and your own penance. Oop, you sinned, do 39 lashes, and there. Now, you, now you've got sufficient. It is only through him, just through him, just through Jesus. No matter what the world would say, no matter what neat, churchy little rhyme might come across social media or wherever, it is just through him. Jesus plus anything else does not equal Jesus and more, as though you might have a better eternal life or more salvation. It actually equals not Jesus and less. So if we turn to the modern day, so we talked about what the context of that time period was, and we look to the modern day, most churches here would not say that, oh, you know, no, Jesus plus something else. You know, they would say that, well, Jesus, of course, is important. <clears throat> the, ter- the church teaching that the gospel is that God loves you and you should be happy in Jesus. A church teaching that if you just say this prayer, then you're going to have an awesome life to live. That is a half-truth and a whole lie. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not about all of you and me. It is about him. It is just about Jesus. It was his perfect life. It is his mercy. It is his gentleness. It is his willingness to go and do those hard and terrible things, and it's his free gift that he gives. All we bring is our own hunger, our own neediness. That's all we bring. There is a banquet laid out, and all we have brought is hunger and need. It's not that we brought some great side dish. It's not if we pay this penance or this price that, look at this, you know, I brought some lemonade to the feast. All we bring is our own neediness and hunger. And it's the hunger for the bread of life. It is the hunger for the living water. Uh, There's a quote that I will misquote from uh, John Piper that says that no one ever ate of the living bread and drank of the living water the bread of life and the living water, and said, I am so full, I just, I've had enough. Don't give me any more of that scripture. Too much Jesus. But when you nibble at the table of the world, and you're distracted, and it's other things besides Jesus, or it's Jesus plus something else, then we say, I'm too full for scripture. I'm too full to pray. Oh, no one ever says I've had enough. I, you know what? I'm, I'm a little too full of the Holy Spirit right now. Jesus is faithful. We are not preserved by our good works. Jesus preserves. Jesus chastises. Jesus loves. Jesus is merciful. He does it because of who Jesus is. It is not because of me it is not because of you or the things that we do. He is merciful. It is just Christ alone. Solo Christo. Just him. So, thank you.
I hate going last. Especially following all these uh, just excellent, excellent teachers. But even worse than that, how does a sinner give a 10 to 15 minute talk on the glory of an omnipotent God? Soli Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. The night that God saved me, Paul Washer opened a sermon like this. He said, missions. This was at a missions conference. He said, missions. It's not about lost people. It's about Jesus. It's not about men. It's about God. And then he proceeded to launch into this uh, diatribe, um, this lay out this vision for the glory of God that I had not experienced. In all of my years in a Christian private school, in all of my years in church, even sitting under what most would consider to be good preaching. I did not know this. I knew all of the answers to all of the questions. I knew theology. I even believed in God's sovereignty. I mean, I was an, a reformed unbeliever. But it was that vision God's glory that I've been missing. You know, it was like having this, this beautiful masterpiece inside of a room with no light. I knew it was there, but I couldn't see it. And as a denomination, I've, I've talked about this before, but I think we're just steeped in doctrine. I think our brains are full of very deep theological truths. And that's a wonderful thing. That's wonderful. But you can know all the stuff and be lost. And it's this love for God's glory, this desire to see God glorified that I believe sets the true believer apart. Is God's glory your motivation? Is it? Whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do you do it to God's glory? So you think of the word glory. The word means value. It means worth, beauty, honor. When you glorify God, you are ascribing to him his infinite, intrinsic value. You're doing things that honor him. You're saying things that magnify his all-surpassing worth. You're reveling in his beauties. And that's the reason that he saved us. You see, of the five solas, this is the one that explains them all. This is the one that gives existence to all the rest. I mean, what's the primary reason for Scripture? It's to show what God has revealed about himself to tell us how to glorify him. What, what about faith alone? Listen to, uh, or actually read Romans 3.27 on the screen. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. Salvation by faith actually removes our boasting. Well, except for the boasting that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, which is just another way of saying glorify God. What about by grace alone? Again, we've, we've already seen these. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that what? 
so that no one may boast. Even by the merit of Christ alone, Christ always sought the glory of his Father. And God the Father looked down and declared, uh, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father testified that. And that's why every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what end? Glory of God the Father. You see it. And I think this is the primary distinction between Reformed theology and unreformed. Just make up a word because I don't want to start naming names here. This is where unreformed doctrines fail because at the heart of it, they seek the glory of man and not the glory of God. They may not say it that way, but that is what their doctrines unveil. The glory of God is the ultimate reason that everything has been done in this universe. The reason that the universe was created at all. I was listening to a, to a sermon recently, uh, and the preacher was, was talking about atheists, these atheists who retort, you know, the universe is, is so vast and just so limitless, and there's just this one tiny little blip of human beings on this one tiny little planet and all of this big universe. You know, why would God do that? Come on, just, you know, you know the argument. Trying to argue against the existence of God. He said, this is what you should say to those people. The universe was never intended to portray the importance of man. The universe was intended to give man an inkling of the glory, the majesty of God. And it's an understatement at that. We're just so man-centered. We are man-focused. We can barely see what's right in front of our faces. I mean, you know, we lift up on pedestals. Guys that can throw a leather ball a little bit farther than most other guys can. I mean, you know, go outside. Like, look around. Look around at all of the things. All, revel in all of the beauties that God has made. See it and be astounded that there is such a being that could create and do such wonders that we can't even understand them all. Without him, nothing would exist that exists. But we get so focused right here, what's right in front of us. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 3. All have sinned. What? How have we sinned? For all have sinned in what? Falls short. Sin to sin means to miss the mark. We have literally missed the exact reason for which we were created. And that is to glorify God. Now, somebody might say, well, that seems pretty selfish of God. That seems pretty arrogant, right? Create a world that's just meant to glorify Him. You know, which, which my knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, when you become God, you can have a chat with Him. Okay? Until then, cover your mouth. Because he says, I am God. And there is no other. I am God. And there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In common parlance, that says, I'll do what I want. If this is not the God that you serve, you do not serve the one true God. 
you serve a figment of your imagination. If you think that God exists for you, the universe exists for you, you are sadly and grossly mistaken. It's all about him. I love this, Kevin. It's all about him. All things were created by him and for him. For from him and through him and to him are how many things? All things. To him be glory forever. To him be the glory forever. All of it. Forever. But I would also argue, just as Jonathan Edwards, just as John Piper, that the glory of God is where we meet our greatest satisfaction, whether in this life or the next. Nothing will ever truly satisfy you but that. No job, no truck, no uh, amount of money, no husband, no wife, nothing. Nothing in this world has that ability. Why? Because you were made in his image and you were made to reflect his glory. That's your ultimate purpose. You know, if I built this this really nice 40-inch tall uh, wooden workbench so that I could work, work on stuff, tinker, whatever. And then I said, you know what? I'm going to take this thing and I'm going to put it in my living room and I'm going to use it as a couch. Or, you know what? I think I'll take this outside and I'm just going to use it as a wheelbarrow. That wouldn't work, would it? Would it? That's not its intended purpose. I designed it to be a workbench. That's what it's best at. That's what it's most satisfied in doing. If I drug it down the street as a trailer, it probably wouldn't be very satisfied. It's the same with all of us. We were created to make much of God, and when we're at our very best, that's what we do. That's what's most satisfying to us. What is the chief end of man? What does the catechism say? To glorify God and enjoy him fully forever. But what have we done instead? Professing to be wise, we've become fools. We've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. Translation, we worship ourselves. We exalt ourselves. We make much of ourselves. Now, let me address you for for just a moment. From the youngest child to the the oldest adult. um, There have been a lot of declarations. You know, I'm I'm talking to believers and unbelievers here. There have been a lot of declarations. Or maybe you're thinking about making a declaration that you will follow Christ that you will commit your life to Christ. Why did you do that? Or why are you considering that? I want you to think about this. Is it because you you thought it sounded like a good idea? It might be some kind of benefit to your life. Is it because your friends were doing it? And you didn't want to feel left out? Is it because you wanted to uh, impress people or wanted to get on somebody's good side or you wanted to uh, do this for the benefit of your parents? Um, Is it because you're scared of dying and going to hell? What what is it? What, What is your motivation? You see, those things are very self centered reasons. Those are all me focused. Now, let me ask you, is it because you're broken over your sin? 
Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Is it that you hate that you haven't loved and glorified God as he deserves? As the tax collector who was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is it because you don't ever want to be apart from the Lord? As 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Does the second part of that verse scare you more than the first? As Moses said, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. Samuel Rutherford said, Oh, my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be a hell. And if I could be in hell and and have thee still, it would be a heaven to me, for thou art all the heaven I want. Is it because you've seen that he is more desirable, more beautiful, more love-worthy than absolutely anything this world can offer? In other words, is it because you simply want Christ? And like Paul Washer said, You'll have him or you'll die. Isaiah 6. Just listen listen to this. Think about this. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If if that doesn't give you chills, If that's not what you want, something's wrong. Something's very wrong. It, this is as good as it gets. This is what we'll be doing in heaven, beholding his glory, singing of his glory, adoring and enjoying his glory for all eternity. I, I love Moses who said, I pray you show me your glory. You know, possibly knowing that it would kill him. But it was worth it. Is that you this morning? This is literally as ultimate as it gets. All of the ultimate existential questions that the puny brain of man has ever postulated are wrapped up in this one phrase, soli deo gloria, to God be the glory alone. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, you know you know how frail this how pathetic this was at trying to ascribe glory to you. But Lord, that is our life's pursuit. Those of us who are believers in this room, Lord, you know that is our pursuit. And we value your glory above all things. I pray that you would help us. Help us, oh God. Give us that vision. Give us that longing to see your glory. Even if we die, so be it. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room 
Oh God, I pray that they would fall in love with Jesus Christ. Please help them. Lord, we thank you so much for all of these men. Thank you so much for all of these people that have been so patient and attentive. I pray that you would bless every single one, Lord. I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, and I pray that you would help us as we go throughout our week. In Jesus' name, amen.